Welcome to PPMD's Living Duchenne, a podcast bringing together community voices to talk about navigating the Duchenne experience. Welcome back, everyone, to Living Duchenne. I'm your host, Rachel Poiskey, a Duchenne mom, and I'm really excited about this series that we have been doing because we are focusing on women. World Duchenne Day, uh, their theme focus this year is on women. And so we here at PPMD decided to kind of do the same thing. So today we um, are kind of going a different, little bit different direction, which I like. We are talking uh, to three people and a couple of them are family members that um, help support uh, moms and dads and kids who are walking the Duchenne journey. And then we also have um, a caregiver on who is the wife of um, her husband has Becker. So we're talking about it for a little bit from two angles today. Um, What does it mean to support the caregiver? And from the caregiver side, what kind of support do you need? So I think this is going to be really helpful for all of us who are listening. Let's start by um, introducing, just introducing our guests. I'm going to start with Susan. Can you tell us a little bit about you and your connection to the Duchenne community? Sure. My name is Susan Samuelson. Uh, We live in Nebraska. My grandson was diagnosed with Duchenne at about six months. Um, We do not have a family history, but I have a strong background in child development and had some conversations with my daughter and her husband went in and saw the doctor, the doctor, I think was leaning more toward a diagnosis or looking at maybe CP or something along those lines, but said she'd draw some blood work. We got back the elevated CK and were absolutely shocked. So that's my, that was my first introduction to Duchenne at that point in my life. Prior to that, I was slightly familiar with it from some of my background. And then also um, I'm old enough that I grew up watching the Jerry Lewis telethon. So um, I was, had some familiarity from that also. Yeah. I had no idea what that telethon was. I mean, I watched it. Isn't that funny? Yeah. <laughs> um, okay. Well, let's move on. Let's move on to Hillary. Um, she is an aunt. And so I'm going to let her tell you a little bit about her. Hi, my name's Hillary Becker. I live in Chicago I'm married. I have two kids and their first cousins. My sister, Joanna, has two sons, Elliot and Henry, who have Duchenne. Um, They were diagnosed in 2007, and it has been quite a journey. Thanks for sharing that, Hillary. And now we have a caregiver. Um, I'm going to let her tell you a little bit about herself, Allison. Hi, I'm Allison Teal. I am married to Stephen, um, and he has Becker muscular dystrophy. He was diagnosed around nine or 10. So he's been living with his whole life, but I've only been living with it for nine years. Uh, we have three beautiful children, um, an eight-year-old, a seven-year-old and a three-year-old. So it's always exciting at our house. <laughs> That's great. Well, thank you ladies for being here. I'm excited for us to just jump right in. So we're talking a little bit 
as we said, about the support for the caregiver. What does that look like? We're so busy all the time talking about our kids um, with Duchenne or adults with Duchenne that we don't always pause and talk about caregiver. And um, the family support system is a big part of that. It can be complicated. It can be helpful. It can be not helpful. We know all those dynamics. Um, But today, obviously, we have um, two family members who are really in the journey with um, their loved ones that have Duchenne. And we just want to kind of hear from them. How do they offer support? What does that look like? What are the challenges? What have the challenges been? So I just want to start, Hillary, um, when we talked a little bit earlier, you had mentioned how, you know, when this diagnosis hits, it's not just the immediate family, but it's the whole family. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, when you heard um, that your nephews were diagnosed, how did that hit you? And then how did you kind of come alongside your sister with that? I mean, to be, you know, to be honest, you know, when, when we first, when we first uh, got the diagnosis, um, I mean, it, you know, I, I was selfishly thinking to perfect, you know, to be honest about this. And I was worried about my own kids and in particular, cause I have a son and a daughter. And I just remember, um, I was working, living in New York and running to my GP's office in New York and saying like, and yeah, and just trying to figure out like, how does this affect us calling the babysitter at home, asking can Peter, uh, stand up normally or is he doing the Gowers maneuver and I was but I think it's like a selfish thing you know I'm thinking about me and I'm thinking about my own kids then once the relief passes that you know it's my son doesn't have it you know then obviously about Joanna and Paul and about the boys and really what that means and that has evolved that was like I said 2007 and what that means now it's a little bit different and what we've done along that way has uh, changed yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that I think what you're saying is something a lot of people experience, right? The the siblings get stressed and worried because it's genetic and people start asking questions and how's this impacting me? I think that's a very natural and, and honest answer that I really appreciate. Um, Susan, I know you were kind of instrumental in helping, you know, get get your um, grandson diagnosed a little bit. And how did that emotional, emotional journey go for you? Because it sounds like maybe you suspected it even before they did. I suspected something was going on, did not suspect it would be a dystrophy or Duchenne. Um, But as far as my grief came on really hard and really fast at diagnosis. And for the next two to three years, um, it was very, very hard. And, and what was interesting in our world is my daughter, I think was a little bit in denial. So we were grieving very, very differently and her husband also, which is fine. And, you know, it just, I couldn't understand why they were reacting the way they were, but I, I accepted it. I've learned far more about grief than I've ever wanted to know through this journey. Um, And for myself, I was, I'm very involved in their lives. I watch them a couple of times a week since they were born. I have two other grandchildren. Um, They're all within uh, a year and a half of each other. 
And so I was very involved in their lives and the day-to-day and a lot of that type of thing, trying really hard to be available, but also really struggling in what was this going to look like and how were they going to manage this? And, you know, like a mom does, I, um, not only was I extremely worried for my grandson, but also for my daughter and her husband. So it's, yeah, it's not, it's a lot. I think that, I think you hit something really important is, you know, the, the mom, the, the, the grandparents are grieving for not just the child with Jushin, but with their own children that they're watching struggle through it. And I love the other part too, where you talked about uh, family dynamics and how people respond differently. And, you know, I, my, my day job, I'm a pastor, I do weddings and I always say all the fun, all the family dynamics come out at the wedding, the best and the worst. And I think with Duchenne, it's, it's like a lifetime of a wedding, right? All <laughs> the dynamics come out and uh, you get to see things. And it makes it harder. And we talked about that with marriage and all kinds of stuff. But but you, you've highlighted a really important piece of it that we everyone does grieve differently. And, um, you know, how do you manage that? And how do you help when you think, this is the way it should go versus appearance and, and that kind of thing. I want to switch a little bit over to the caregiver side and just hear a little bit from Allison. Like, you know, what do you need when you think about other people supporting you and what's been difficult and what, what has been some really good things people have done to support you? One of the things that I have found that I needed that I didn't realize I needed in the beginning was time away from Steven and from my children where I'm not having to be a caregiver for anybody. Um, Whether that's an hour in the car driving to Walmart and driving back, or if it's going away for, you know, a whole day or a night or whatever. Um, But that is incredibly helpful to my mental health and physically um, because it's really hard to rest knowing that things need to be done and people need to be helped. And I think that's kind of a mom experience in general, Um, but especially, you know, having like heavy duty caregiving going on. And another thing that thankfully I've had pretty much since day one was a friend group. That was always a really safe place for me to vent and say the ugly things and the things that you don't want to say as a caregiver or a wife. Um, And they would listen to it and understand. And there was never judgment for that. And that I've always been super grateful for. And there are times where I'll get on the phone and I'm like, I just need you to listen. I love him. Just listen to me for just a minute. And they're like, okay, we got you. Say what you need to say, get it out. That way I can be my best self when I'm helping him and not have any fear or anxiety doing the things I need to do. Huge, Allison. That's, I, I, I can't even imagine because even for myself as a grandma, it is, I don't really have people who necessarily can understand my dynamic, you know, most of my Mm -hmm. friends have healthy grandchildren and their children are healthy, et cetera, et cetera. And um, what a beautiful community that you have. That's, Mm -hmm. that's great. And it's all people who love him. And I think that's what makes it easy because they know that, that having those conversations with me helps all of us love him better. And so it's easy for them to, to do those things. So Allison, I'm just wondering too, you know, as the wife, that's a little bit different caregiver role as well. And how, um, how do you interact maybe with other family members that 
have been in caregiving roles for him or been helpful with that? And what does that look like? So it's actually a little tricky because no one really had to be his caregiver before. Um, His parents got to be typical parents. They didn't really have to help him with much other than occasionally helping him up or down some steps, but his body behaved pretty, pretty able-bodied and normal for most of his life. So once he started needing caregiving, a lot of them were just kind of afraid to touch him and help if we were around. Um, I think everyone viewed him as suddenly very fragile and breakable, which he's a, he's a thick, sturdy man. So he doesn't look that way at all. Um, But it was, it was kind of just learning to communicate. Okay. He needs this. It's okay for you to do this. Um, And it's going to be scary and it's going to not be fun, but it's okay. And we'll work through it together. And I've actually, um, kind of had to explain some things to his parents that they didn't know, but of course they're eager to learn, but they're three hours away from us. So every time we go visit them, he needs something new or things have changed. And so it's kind of that constant back and forth of, okay, this is what he needs now. This is how you can help me help him or don't help me help him. Just watch. I know it's hard to watch, but like, just hang out. We'll, we'll get him off the couch or do whatever it is, if that makes sense. Yeah, you you bring up such a good point, Allison, about how the diagnosis is ever changing, mm-hmm. you know, and I know that even with my son where um, we'll, we'll not have seen somebody in a long time and you're kind of watching their shock and then you're having to help them yeah. navigate what what's new, what they can do, what they can't do. And Hillary, I know you've watched that. And how has your role changed? Because, you know, when they're little, there's less that's needed from you kind of physically or to be present. But how do you feel like your role has changed as a support as the um, your nephew's needs have gotten more? Um, I think like the early days when I think, you know, it feels so long ago in a lot of ways. So when I think back on the those are the early days of the diagnosis, um, by the way, like I observe this as I meet new families in the PPMD community when I go to the advocacy conference. Um, but the initial days are um, almost like panic, like a clock is ticking and they're still walking. So we got to get in a trial and we got to get the pharma company to get the approval. and We have to get the FDA to do something and the government to do something and whatever. And then, um, you know, they became non-ambulatory and then that stuff sort of is, is off the table. And then, um, there's, there's not that kind of, um, panic thing in some ways. And then it's kind of, uh, you know, just, you know, as they go through these life changes, Elliot has started university and we're facing a bunch of things in, in terms of making that possible. So it's kind of shifted from that initial thing we've got to find a cure. We got to solve this too. Now we're living with this thing and how to be supportive to Joanna and Paul, but also Alan Hen. I like to call them. Um, yeah. Now the word this part in the, uh, in the disease. Yeah. I, I think that what you're making, the point you're making is really, you know, um, in a way you have to assess where the, children are where the parents are or the you know where the individual is and and you join where that is and so in the beginning it's kind of okay maybe we need to like really fight for you know fight for research and get them in trials and things like that and then as their needs change sometimes it's how can we 
support them and what they're doing and their goals and their dreams and that kind of thing. But what I hear is really being sensitive to the caregiver and to the individual with muscular dystrophy and saying, okay, where are they and what are they, their desires for their life right now? And how do I walk alongside that? And that changes. It changes based on where they are, um, which is really important because I think that requires the caregiver to listen and be mindful and be adapt the caregiver support people, I should say. Um, if you're supporting caregivers and supporting the family to be adaptable to the change. And it's almost like you're letting the caregivers and um, the individuals uh, make the decision about what, what they want and you're coming alongside them. And sometimes that can be easy and sometimes that can be hard. How do you feel like, Allison, you communicate when you have changing things with other people? What's, what's the easiest way to kind of say, here's what I need. And how do you deal when people are giving you not what you want? Well, I think a lot of it is just trying to communicate again and again until I can communicate it in a way that they understand. Cause each family member is going to hear it differently. I definitely have to say things in a gentler way to some people because they will be emotional and kind of start grieving all over again. Um, but I have found that I just have to kind of take my time and maybe it's a conversation. We have a bunch of this has changed and this is what we need. Um, for example, my parents' house isn't accessible. There's a bunch of steps to get inside. Um, and so we're working right now on communicating with them about getting a ramp and um, how to do so and all of those things so that Stephen can once again, go to their house and be part of family events. But it, it's been a process of a conversation of, well, why can't you just do this? But how come this solution doesn't work? Mm -hmm. Um, and so they're trying to meet my needs, but mm -hmm. they're doing it from that outside of muscular dystrophy logic. Um, because there's a lot of things that happen within the world of muscular dystrophy that kind of, we only understand once we're in it. And so it's being patient with people as they don't understand. And they don't, um, quite hear me the way that I want them to, but also I think I've learned to kind of take accountability and say, you know what, I'm speaking out of frustration or I'm trying to explain it to you a way um, that I know you don't understand, but I'm frustrated. So I'm just going to keep, you know, being super scientific about it or using the medical terms when sometimes it's just helpful to be like, he's really tired. And that's, that's the gist of it. Like, you don't need to know why he's tired or what's going on, you know, just kind of being patient with them and, and being mindful of myself. Yeah. No, that's good. Yeah, because you sometimes you have to be their advocate, which is exhausting to being their advocate to people who are trying to support you to kind of yeah. say, okay, I got this or let let me be let me be the expert on this. And that's kind of how do you feel sometimes, Susan? Have you ever experienced where you you thought I really would do this differently, but I know I've got to set my boundary and let them do it? Yeah, that's a thing. Um yeah. Uh, so that is definitely, I, I am so fortunate that my daughter and I have a strong relationship. It's not perfect, but together we both know that we're working toward um, the best and the good for, for Hunter. Um, but we, we do things differently. We're, she's my kiddo who's very different than I am. And so the way she hears things or the way I hear things or the way I think it should be done or the way she thinks it should be done. But I, I have to 
keep myself in check because the truth is I'm not the one who's living it every single minute of every single day. And I do recognize that it's, and we've, you know, there have been times we've definitely had some little bit of heated conversations and I, I don't think that could happen in every family dynamic. It just happens to be that she and I can both handle it and, um, and be okay with each other. And sometimes we're mad at each other and sometimes we're not, I mean, most of the time we're not, but occasionally we are. So, so much of that just depends on the family and the dynamic and that sort of thing. Um, and I think too, like for her husband, you know, here's this mother-in-law who's like, but what about this? Or what have you guys thought about that? Or, you know, and I'm sure poor Randy sometimes is like, geez, <laughs> but um, they do know, they really do know. And my husband and I have worked very, very hard to let them understand that we are really there for them. And we are really, really trying to do what's best and right for Hunter. And so if we have some of those moments, we're, we generally get through it okay. So, um, and, and they don't happen all the time. I mean, that, that's not the norm, but yeah. yeah, it happens. Yeah. I think, I think you're acknowledging what every family goes through, you know, there, but, but what I like, as you said, we both know we want the best, you know, we're trying to do the best for Hunter. And I think that's where families have to start, you know, and it's kind of the, uh, those supporting the caregiver have to give grace. Um, I may be kind of super controlling when it comes to my son, you know, I don't want somebody else to lift him or move him or, and, and I know that's my issue. And, and he plays into it just fine because he doesn't want anybody else to, that's another topic for my own therapy. But my, my point is, um, you know, I think, I think we can act in extremes and, um, and even the, the caregivers sometimes know I should let other people in, but, but that's also part of the grief journey. And that's, that's part of the journey itself. And so I'm just asking all of you out there that support caregivers to give us a little patience and grace because, um, because we are sometimes operating from a place of, you know, maybe anxiety and control that we should let go a little bit more. Um, and I, we, from all the caregivers out there, we appreciate your patience. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. Well, this has been such a great conversation. I feel like we could go on and on and on. So as we, as we wrap up this, um, I want to ask you the question that I ask every time. And that question is, what do you know should be true about living Duchenne? I'm going to start with you, Hillary. You know, it's, it's, uh, I mean, it's certainly not something I ever would have wished for Elliot and Henry or Joanna and Paul. Um, but, um, but it's okay. Sort of. I don't, can't believe I'm saying that, but it's okay. Like it's okay somehow. I mean, it's, deeply sad on some level, but it's also okay, you know, and that's been something that's been important to me, like, so they have this thing, it's pretty terrible in some ways, but life goes on, kind of, and, uh, um, and as much as we can, you know, like, yeah, like, I I see them as two other individuals, as, and 
and I'm talking about Elliot and Henry in particular here, like I see them as, uh, and I think that that's an important thing and to treat them that way too, not like uh, as a handicapped person or, or something like that. So, but it, th- like, it's that, I, that is something that's been so important to me personally. No, I love that. I, I think, uh, you know, as, as our boys are living and girls are living longer and things like that, we really are having to say, what is their identity as a person, not as a disease? And what are they contributing to the world? And they are. And, um, and to acknowledge that not only those with Duchenne or Becker or the families, but the caregivers that support them and the friends and family are better and different. Their lives are better and different because they encountered um, Duchenne and Rebecca, we don't, we don't always want to say that, but I think part of what you're saying is they've impacted your life for the good. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And you're a different person. And, and that is um, the bright spot. And we always have. And can I just say too, like Elliot and Henry are bigger than Duchenne. Yeah. And my, my, my relationship with Joanna and our family's relationship with each other is way bigger than uh, than the disease, a hundred percent. And that's such a good point. That as caregivers, as support, we need to be make it bigger than the disease, and to keep nurturing those relationships in a different way. Yeah, Allison, what do you know to be true about living? I'm gonna say living Becker. So, <laughs> yeah. Well, I think I know that it's okay to not know everything, to not know when things are going to change, how things are going to change, to not know what to do, to not know what we need. But we both, Stephen and I have, we, we've come to the place, but we also were constantly changing in it of, you know, we're not going to know what our future looks like. I don't know how much time I'm going to get with him. We don't know, you know, kind of what everything holds, but it's okay to not know things. Things can still be beautiful. We can still make plans. We can still dream and have visions and ideas and goals for ourselves and our children. Um, but we don't have to know everything. And that's hard for me because I like to control. I like to know, you know, what's going on and he does too. Um, but it's okay to not, and it, it can be scary and still be okay. I love that. Yeah. Susan, what do you know to be true about living Duchenne? I think living Duchenne is shocking and it impacts every single piece of your life, every single decision that the family makes is affected because of Duchenne. There's beauty in this walk and in this journey, but it is, it is far, far reaching. And there I I think the hard part for me just watching for my daughter and her husband is literally every single decision they make has to, there's a piece of Duchenne in it. Um, You know, things, what kind of a house do we get? Can I put a rug here? Can I, what are we going to do about a, how are we going to afford a van? What are we going to do about medical how come this bill isn't being covered, but that one is, I could go on and on, but, um, and, and it's a hard, it is hard. It's a very hard journey. 
again, there's a lot of beauty. I mean, the people you meet, the, the other families, the, the, the beauty of my grandson, I would, you know, I'd take Duchenne away from him, but I, I couldn't, I couldn't love anybody more than I love him, but it's a very shocking disease. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. It's been great, ladies. I've really just uh, enjoyed hearing from you from a caregiver and caregiver support. And so I'm just going to challenge everybody out there. You're listening. If you are a caregiver, I want you to just think of somebody out there that's been a good support system for you. And I want you to text them and say thanks. And uh, if you're supporting some caregivers, if you're helping them, uh, I'm going to challenge you to just send a text to say, hey, you're doing a good job because caregivers need to hear that. They need to hear that, um, you know, you're supporting them and that they're doing a good job. And uh, I think that goes a long way. I know a lot of caregivers, you know, they are just they know this is they love their person with Duchenne or Becker and they want to caregive with, they want to be their caregiver, but, um, but every once in a while they need to hear they're doing a good job. So, so I'm going to challenge you all to do that. Thank you, Susan, Allison, and Hillary. And thank you for joining us on this podcast of Living Duchenne. We will talk to you later. Bye.